Thank you for that. <clears throat> you may be seated. Appreciate everybody venturing out on this uh, post-white Christmas experience we're having here today. Uh, glad that you chose to be with us and to uh, invest this time in opening and exploring God's Word and worshiping together and being in fellowship. Uh, as I sometimes note on days like this, we do have a lot of really valuable seats up here if somebody feels like they would want to really get in on that. Uh, I know it's hard to move once we've started our service, but just encourage you to think about joining together because our worship experience is together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of today, the gift of life. We're looking at the end of a year. We're looking at the opening of a new year. But Father, right now, with all the busyness of that, all the distractions of that, we're asking that your Spirit would come and help us by your Word to hear from you and respond with hearts of obedience. Father, there's a truth here that we need to hear today. And I pray we'd hear it as a church and as families and as individuals. And I ask that by a transforming work of your Spirit, you would give us that desire to be doers and not hearers only. And we make that our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in Luke chapter 2, which is an interesting passage. And there are passages of Scripture that are actually just more popular or liked by some people than others. It's said that Martin Luther didn't care much for the book of James. Once he came to really understand that salvation was by grace through faith, then he couldn't figure out what all that good works was about in the book of James. Uh, my wife and I recently saw the movie The Hobbit, and uh, I read where the British actor who played Gandalf, his name is Ian McKellen, doesn't like Leviticus chapter 18. And so when he stays in any hotel, he rips that out of the Gideon Bible because he disagrees with what that particular passage says about God's standard about human sexuality. Uh, it, one of our presidents, Thomas Jefferson, was famous for having a Bible where he ripped out all kinds of passages he didn't understand or agree with. And you know, it's easy to look at those kind of experiences and say, well, yes, that's totally wrong because we know we need to have this high respect for the Word of God, which is true. But I think we also need to admit, you know what, we all have a sense of some passages we would just as soon avoid because they're not as comforting. They're not as clear for us to understand. In fact, they might smack us in the face a little bit. Today's passage in Luke chapter 2 is one of those stories. The first part of chapter 2 is our famous Christmas story, probably read in almost all churches across America and even the world this last week. It's a story of Jesus being born as a baby in a manger. It's a story of Mary and Joseph, and it's a story of the shepherds coming and glorifying God and worshiping that Christ child. Then the next section, which is not as often talked about, but is still uh, commonly shared, is the story of when Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple for the first time. They needed to present him as their firstborn. And when they took him there, there were a couple of elderly people, one named Simeon, who spoke about who Jesus was, the Savior of the world, the Savior of the Jews, and the Savior of the Gentiles. And there was a woman named Anna who also honored God because she was able to see this Christ child, and she told everybody who he was. So that's a famous story that we kind of like around Christmas time. But that's not our story for today. Our story for today is the third section of chapter 2. It's the story about when Jesus was 12 years old. It's the only story we have from his childhood and the only picture we have. And honestly, I've never heard it talked about on Focus on the Family. They might have. I didn't do the research to see if they do talk about it. But it makes us a little uncomfortable because we have a 
preconceived idea of what we'd like Jesus' relationship to be like with his parents. Respectful, obedient, pleasing. And we know that Jesus lived without sin. What was it like to raise a child who did not sin? Who knows? But Mary and Joseph. But anyway, the story that we're going to read actually has confrontation in it. And Mary and Jesus don't seem to be on the same page. So it makes us a little bit wonder what's going on. But I think there's some important lessons for us to grasp this morning from this story. So let's dive in. If you have your Bibles or your uh, sheets there with the text, we're going to start with chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. So what's the picture here is we have a pious Jewish family who, we would say, religiously carried out their Jewish religious traditions. That meant they made that pilgrimage from Nazareth down to Jerusalem every year for Passover. It was several days walk there, a time of celebration and some days there, and then several days walk back. This was a big event. They had to plan for it weeks ahead, get everything ready, get the food ready, get themselves ready, get their home and animals and everything taken care of. It would have been something that would have been burnt into the memory of Jesus by this time because he had done it every year of his life. And many people from their community made that pilgrimage. And so they made that pilgrimage in community with other friends and neighbors and family members. But one thing this passage points out is Jesus was 12 years old. Now, I didn't actually check to see if we have any 12-year-olds in the audience this morning, but we kind of give 12-year-olds a hard rap sometimes. (laughs) We think 12-year-olds can't be very responsible. In fact, they're right on the threshold of becoming teenagers. That's a scary thing, isn't it? But actually, we have to kind of go out of our scope of experience and see what was it like in the time of Jesus' life to be 12 years old. And what it meant was he was right on the threshold of being held responsible, being treated as an adult. And so boys and girls, when they were 9, 10, 11, were being prepared not for another 10 or 15 years of irresponsible behavior, but they were being prepared to take on adult-like responsibilities and to act as that part in their community and their family. And so that's who this 12-year-old Jesus was at that time. And that's what the setting was, and that's what Mary and Joseph expected of him in that day. I will say, in order to uh, rescue some of our 12-year-olds and 13, 14, and 15-year-olds, I think we underestimate incredibly what our teenagers are capable of. And we don't give them the opportunity or the challenge to do things and to participate in our church, sometimes in our family, in ways that they're actually capable of. And so we could learn something from how uh, the Jewish culture handled kids in that time of life. So this would be the equivalent, uh, in essence, of a church that was, uh, I mean, of a family that was so faithful, they would be at church every Sunday and Wednesday. I mean, these guys were doing all the pious things that they should do. So let's look at verse 43. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, this gets tricky, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. 
Okay, every year down to Jerusalem for Passover, that celebration of their salvation, days there, every day journeying back. But this year, something different happened. They walked all day. They're a whole day's journey away from Jerusalem, one-third of the way back to Nazareth. And then, when evening comes and they're setting up camp, they start looking for Jesus. And again, it would be kind of our expectation that these must be incredibly irresponsible parents. How did they not know the 12-year-old was missing? But you see, for one thing, they lived in community with aunts and uncles and cousins and did things together. And they knew everybody in their village who was in this caravan. They purposely traveled in the caravan because of the joy of it, of experiencing the Passover with their loved ones, and because of the safety of it. The roads really weren't safe in Israel in those days. And so by traveling in a large group, you had automatically built-in safety. And so it was not an unusual thing that Joseph would, um, and Mary would expect that Jesus would be, as a 12-year-old who was responsible and almost an adult, he would know when it was time to leave, and he would know all the parts he was supposed to play, and he must be in this group somewhere, and they were probably visit, visiting with their friends and their uh, brothers and sisters and other friends from the community, and they expected Jesus to be doing the same. But that night, they couldn't find him. Now, as a parent, what goes on in your heart when you've journeyed a whole day's journey from the city, and all of a sudden you find that your son is not there? I think you'd be busy talking to everybody. Did you see him? Was he with us part of the way? Did he stop somewhere and he got separated? What do you think has happened? Does anybody remember whether he started out with us from Jerusalem? And they would have talked and talked. But you know what they couldn't do? They couldn't start right then and go back to Jerusalem because it was getting to be night. There's no way it was going to be safe for them or possible for them to make that journey in the middle of the night. And so they had to lie down and try to rest, waiting to get up in the next morning and return to Jerusalem. Mom and Dad, what's that like? That night, how well do you sleep when your son is missing like that? They get up the next day. They walk all day. I'm sure they were talking about themselves. Where do you think we should look? Where could he be? What do you think he might have done? How might we have missed him? And all day they walked, got to Jerusalem, and it was coming on evening. And even in the city of Jerusalem, they couldn't go around at night and look for Jesus. So they got there at the end of that second day, and they had to again try to sleep and wonder, where is he? We've got to look first thing in the morning. Where should we look first? Where would he be? And that was the um, experience that they were having. And so it was the third day that uh, they began to look. And in fact, they didn't seem to know where to look first. Because Jerusalem isn't that massive of a city. But it took them most of the day to finally find Jesus. It was the end of that third day after they were looking at him. So now we're going to look at this reunion. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Well, what does this reunion look like? You have to have a picture. It was normal for the temple to be used as a public place. It was not a private place that very few people went. The chief teachers and rabbis would kind of hold court. And people would come to hear them teach. 
And the way they taught was their, their students would come with them and they would ask questions and the rabbis would answer and some teacher of the law would be referred to, what does this exactly mean and what should we do here? And there would be kind of a public gathering with the teachers and their students and then people would just come around to watch this. It was like the entertainment. It was like tuning into the History Channel. If you want to learn something, go and listen to the discussion in the temple. And so that's what was going on. And they didn't think to look there first, but by the end of the day, they go and they see Jesus there. Now, it wasn't unusual for there to be teenage boys in that environment. What was really unusual is that any teenage boy would be part of the discussion. Mostly, they were expected to be quiet and to respect their elders and to sit on the side and just to learn. But when Joseph and Mary came into that court setting and they saw the crowd and they saw the teachers and they saw something was going on and they took notice of it and they saw Jesus right in the middle of that, they were quiet for a minute. And they said, what is going on? And as they watched, they realized people are listening to Jesus. They are impressed by what he has to say. In fact, they're astonished at how much he seems to know about God's word and God himself and God's kingdom. And so I think Mary and Joseph, before they had their next little episode, were touched with pride and joy. Of course, the joy of seeing him and knowing that he was safe, but mixed in with, look where our son is, look at our boy. He is wowing the crowd. And so that was the setting when they came back and found Jesus. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, just stay there. This reunion um, moved into another gear. I'm going to call this a Jewish mother's moment. (laughs) Okay? Joseph and Mary are there, but Mary is the spokesperson in this case. Now, I don't want to be racist, and I certainly don't want to be sexist, but, you know, we hosted a couple of Seder meals here at the church, and we had rabbis come and lead us through that process of what the Passover is like and the fulfillment of what Christ has done in the Passover. And both of those rabbis told jokes about Jewish mothers, I noticed, which I thought was interesting and telling about the Jewish culture and the things they think about. And I was going to tell some jokes, and I thought, no, that's really in poor taste in the middle of a sermon. But honestly, I'm going to tell a few jokes because I think it helps us understand Mary, which is an important part of this. One very common Jewish joke is a story about a boy calling mother. And he gets hold of mother on the phone. Mother, how are you doing? Oh, not very well. (gasps) What's wrong, mother? Well, I'm weak. Why are you weak? What's wrong? Well, I haven't eaten for five days. You haven't eaten for five days. Do I need to come? Do you need help? Have you been sick? What's going on? Oh, no, no, son. It's all right. No, No problem like that. I just haven't eaten for five days. Well, why haven't you eaten for five days? Well, I didn't want to have food in my mouth when you called. And so I've just been waiting for your call. (laughs) And so, you know, it kind of points out that tendency, perhaps stereotypical, of Jewish mothers to be suffering silent women. Not so silent, but pretty big on the suffering. Then another similar story is told where, again, a mother and a son, and the son comes rushing home from school and says, Mom, I've got really good news. I have a part in the school play. And the mom is very proud and very excited. and says, Oh, that's great, son. I know you'll do well. What part did you get? He said, oh, I got a good part, Mom. I get to be the Jewish husband. To which the mother says, oh, that'll never do. You go back and tell that teacher that you want a speaking part. (laughs) 
The idea being that uh, perhaps in a Jewish home, as much as we know from the culture that the expectation is that the women were silent, the actual Jewish culture tells us a little differently that Jewish mothers and Jewish women had a way of getting their voice heard in different times and settings. And actually, that's exactly what's happening in our story. And part of the reason I decided to risk telling these jokes is because I think we struggle with making people like Mary into almost fairy tale characters. Not somebody that's real, not somebody we can identify with. When Mary was a, an actual human being that had struggles like we do, and her confusion and her anxiety are things that we can relate to. And I think God wants to teach us some things, not only by seeing who Jesus was in this story, but by seeing how Mary responded in this story. And so we get into this confrontation with uh, Mary and Jesus. And basically the question she said is, Son, you have treated us. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. So remember the scene. Jesus is seated with all the teachers. Everybody's paying attention to him. Everybody's hearing truth that amazes them. And then all of a sudden, this voice comes out of somewhere. A woman's voice in the middle of the temple. All the teachers and the rabbis are there. And this voice cries out and says, Son, why have you treated us like this? And so I imagine in that scene that all the heads turned. What happened to our big teaching session here? And all of a sudden, this 12-year-old boy is in the hot seat. And I think a lot of those guys recognized a mother's voice crying out to her son to say, man, you're in trouble. What have you done? And I imagine that they turned to Jesus to see how will he respond, this one who is so wise, so knowing, so godly, has so much insight about God's word. How will he respond to his mother? How does a good Jewish boy respond to his mother? And I think in our hearts, we want him to be very accommodating and encouraging. Oh, Mom, I'm so sorry that I caused you to be anxious. That would be kind of the way I would script it if I was writing this. It's not what God did. It's not what Jesus did. Listen to Jesus' reply. Verse 49. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or some translations say, about my father's business? This question is a rebuke. Basically, Mary is saying, have you not been thinking about us? Have you not been thinking about me? Don't you know how anxious I have been? And Jesus' question to her is, Mary, didn't you know? Let's think about it for a minute. What did Jesus, I mean, what did Mary know? Mary had an angel come and visit her and tell her that she was going to have a baby she was going to name Jesus, the Savior of the world. That when she asked, how can I have a baby? I'm not even married. And he said, God is going to come upon you and this will be the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. And after that visitation, she went to Elizabeth and Elizabeth reaffirmed that the baby she was bearing was the Savior of the world. The baby's born in a manger, and the shepherds come, and they testify. The angels told us this baby is the Savior of the world who came on the line of David to sit on his throne forever. So Mary heard these things, and she treasured them in her heart. She took Jesus to the temple, and she heard Simeon, that elderly man, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the salvation of the Messiah to show up. And that guy came up and took baby Jesus and said, Now I have seen the salvation of God. The salvation for Israel and the salvation for Gentiles. But before he gave Jesus back to Mary, he said, you know what, though? This baby is going to cause a division in all of Israel. Some people will be for him. Some people will be against him. And Mary, a sword is going to come and pierce your heart 
because of this baby. And so Mary didn't fully understand what that meant. But there was going to be a cost. And certainly we know that Mary stood at the cross and watched Jesus die. And in that very real sense, suffered the piercing of her heart for her beloved son. But also she had come to understand along this journey that he was, in fact, not just her son, but the Savior. So the question is, was part of that painful learning that Mary had to happen, part of that piercing of her heart, happening in this story? Her expectation was, basically, God, your working is about me and helping me and doing something in my life. And she couldn't quite see what Jesus was about. And so I want to look at whether, even with all that knowledge, Mary had other incidences of this. Um, One of them is found in Luke chapter 8. I think we'll have the text up there, but you can look in your Bibles. Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Another case when Jesus is approached by his mother, and we have to find out how respectful he is. How does he treat her in this case? And this is Luke chapter 8, verse 19. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, came to see him. This is during a time when Jesus was popular and the crowds were growing, but there was also dissent. And there was a little concern that Jesus was getting in trouble with this ministry. So it seems his mother and brothers came to calm him down and to advise him not to make so much trouble and to be a little bit quieter about his ministry. But they come, and you wonder, did they also expect to be getting the VIP treatment? We're his mother and brothers. And there's a big crowd around, and the crowd won't even part to let them in. And so this is what happens. It says they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And again, it's one of those silent moments. What's he going to do? His mother has shown up. And the thought would be, oh, well, bring her in. Oh, mom, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm so glad you came. It's so important. You know, when we watch like a baseball game, often when a guy gets up to bat, if his mother is in the stadium, the camera pans in on the mother to show who the mother is and how proud she is and how right it is that she's there with her son. It's a sweet moment. But there's sort of a human way we think it's incredibly special to be the mother of Jesus. And did Mary have some of that sense as well? But in this case, when she was outside and the crowds were pushing, instead of Jesus making a special exception for her, he said this, verse 21, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. In other words, it is a special honor that Mary has had. There's no question about that. And she is my mother. And we'll find that Jesus did not disrespect his mother. But he said, what's more important is what God the Father is doing in building his kingdom. And the people that are important to him are the people that are hearing his word and putting it into practice. And they, in fact, are my mothers and my brothers and the people that I am most knit to, most connected to, most on journey with, because that's the plan of the Father. Well, there's another example in Luke chapter 11. In this case, Mary wasn't there, but there was a a woman observing how special Jesus was and how famous he was becoming, and she speculated that, oh, it must be this incredible thing to be that boy's mother. Let's listen to that in verse... Uh, 27, 28, chapter 11. Um, As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So that woman's perspective again was, Oh, just to be your mother would be the most important thing. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what's important. I'll tell you what's special. I'll tell you where God is at work. 
It's when somebody hears the Word of God and actually puts it into practice and begins living that. And so what was Mary learning that day? What do we need to learn through this? Is our tendency like Mary's? My conviction studying this passage was Mary, like me, had a big tendency to say, okay, God, what have you done for me lately? I want you to comfort me. I want you to give me security. I want you to help. I've got these problems. Won't you help with them? Come on, Jesus, get over here. I've got some things I need some help with. That's kind of the way we process life. It's human nature. And Mary was a bit like that. Joseph, don't you know how anxious your father and I have been? Haven't you been thinking about us? Don't you realize what our world is like? And what Jesus was saying was, Mother, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? I did not come just to comfort your world. I came to draw you in to my father's business as well. And the highest calling I have for you is to let go of your things, Mom, and join me in my Father's business. And you see, that applies to all of us as we get ready to face a new year. Instead of just thinking, what does God, what's he going to do for me this coming year? Which problems is he going to solve? How is he going to make my life more secure and more comfortable, more fun, more enjoyable? Instead, we need to push those questions aside. And by the way, it's almost time for New Year's resolutions, isn't it? I forgot to bring the list, but I understand the top three or four are got to lose some weight again this year. Maybe quit smoking if that's an issue with us. Need to eat better, get more exercise, perhaps save some more money. Those are the top kind of things that we make as ambitious goals for the new year over and over and over again. And guess what? All those things are pretty much about ourselves. And what about entering a year and saying, okay, I got to quit thinking about my world and God the Father Through your word, by your spirit, I want to know what do you want me to do in this new year? What do you want me to do in my family that represents your kingdom and your values and your agenda? What do you want to be about? What do you want me to do at work? What do you want to do with my finances and with my relationships and my spare time? God the Father, what do you want to be? How do I join you in your business instead of being so focused on what my business is? JFK, of course, has the famous quote about saying that we should not ask what our country could do for us, but we should ask what we can do for our country. What I'm suggesting is that this story of Mary and Jesus and Jesus saying, didn't you know I would be about my father's business, is basically saying, what does it look like for us to start asking that question? God, what do you want me to know and do and be this year? We've actually provided uh, Bible reading guides in your handout for the year. And sometimes, I don't know how many of you have ever planned to read through the Bible in a year. It's a great idea. But sometimes we just add it to our list of to-do things. And we think, I should do that because I'd feel better about myself if I did that. And frankly, I'd like to be able to tell the people in my Bible study that I read through the Bible in a year. Let me encourage you not to do that. But to repent of that and say, God, I do want to read through your word this year by your spirit. But I want to be a hearer and a doer. I want to hear this year what things you have for me to do to join you and leave my small world behind. And if that's the case, I would love for you to grab one of these things and to apply your hearts and your minds to that. And I I have some sympathy for all of us in this struggle because like Mary, we're a little confused as to what God is up to. And we're constantly drawn back to our own interests. I shared earlier, even as a staff here at church, you know, it's been a year like it has been for all the people in the congregation of transition, a couple of years. 
We had a time, uh, you know, with John Guest's retirement. We had a time with working with Bruce and trying to understand direction and what each of our roles was. And then Bruce left. And so the staff had to figure out, okay, what do I do now? And what's, how's my ministry fit in? And how am I supposed to be part of the team now? And we had months without uh, a senior pastor, praying and asking God to bring a senior pastor. Now we have a senior pastor, and so we're in another time of transition, saying, how do we fit in? And the temptation is to say, what about me? Do people care about me and my ministry and my place here? And is this as comfortable a place for me as it was? And am I going to have as great an advantage as I might have? And what is clear is we as a staff, and this would be true of all of us as a congregation, need to be asking the question, God, what are you up to? What attitude do you want me to have? What words do you want me to speak? How do I show respect and honor for you and your agenda at a time like this? And it's not that easy. It takes the grace of God and the Spirit of God to help us. But God is in that business of helping us. And like Mary, we don't have to understand everything. But we have to occasionally be willing to be rebuked. Mary was rebuked that day. Mary, didn't you know? And as you look at God's Word, it's not all just words of comfort. Some of it stings. Because we need the selfishness driven out of us. We need our our lack of faith to be addressed sometimes. We need to confess things to God. But God, in the midst of that, just like Jesus, was doing a good thing for his mother in responding to her the way he did. I do want to finish this story because it finishes well. Um, The last couple of verses here. Verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let me assure you before you leave that Jesus did respect his mother. Jesus was kind to his mother. Jesus loved his mother. He just knew that the thing she needed most was to be drawn into the Father's business instead of into her own world. On the cross, in his moment of serious suffering and focus on all that was happening in the kingdom of God, he looked and saw his mother. And with compassion, he said to John, a relative and friend of his, his closest disciple, John, you now act as, the, as if this woman is your mother. And mother, you treat that young man as your son. And from that time on, Mary went and lived with John. So even at his death, Jesus was showing compassion for his mother. Jesus is compassionate. And this passage tells us he went home with them as a 12-year-old and stayed home and lived honoring them and respecting them and being an encouraging part of their family until he came into his public ministry at the age of 30. So that was kind of the life of Jesus. But perhaps we need, instead of the comfort of Jesus as we enter a new year, we need the rebuke to say, don't you know that I would be in my father's house about my father's business. And as a church, let's be about the father's business. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you again for your word. Thank you for your love for us. So much love that you don't leave us alone. So much love that you don't always give us what we want, what we think we need. Instead, you give us the very things we need. And I do thank you for your word. And Father, I pray for each of us that you would again whet our appetites for your word. Not that we could just be smarter and able to answer questions, but so we would know you and know what you are asking for us to do in your kingdom. And Father, we do pray for our church. We ask that we would be a word-centered church that has a heart to follow God and to honor God and to be about God's business in this Pittsburgh community. And we ask for the grace and mercy to do so. 
In Jesus' name, amen.